morning. If you're new with us, uh, my name is Tim Deal. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to have you with us. And that was a clip from the film McFarlane USA. Uh, it, it is based on a true story of a coach named John White who worked with a group of runners from McFarland High School who, when he, when he kind of came there as the coach, um, didn't have much in terms of aspirations for greatness. They were kind of novice runners. Uh, but over the course of the season, this coach trained them, worked with them, inspired them to become better than they ever thought they could. And in this clip, uh, you, we see this, this race in which they're trying to qualify for the state championship. And they have to come in fourth in order to do that. Um, and there's a lot we can go into with that, but that's kind of an aside. Um, what's fascinating to me as I, as I see this clip and as I think about running in general is kind of the, the, the speech in the beginning, right? So the coach is kind of trying to, to hype them up, and he talks about how everybody's in pain. The guy beside you, the guy in front of you, they're all in pain. You're in pain. The question is not who has less pain. The question is, who's tougher? Who can push through it? And it might be tempting to kind of like roll your eyes and be like, ah, yeah, that's like, you know, that's the, the speech that is required in a sports movie comes about now, and then they go do something remarkable. Um, but the thing is, it's actually really true. Like, if you know a runner, you know that they're kind of weird, right? Like, so I'm, I'm the dad of a runner now, and uh, so I, I talked to him about this. And that, that idea that, that everyone's in pain, and the question is just who's able to push through it, who's, who's tougher, is actually true. That it requires this ability. Not, it, it, that training isn't about getting to the point where you don't feel pain. It's about being able to push through the pain, even when you feel it. So we're continuing a series that we've been on the last couple of weeks called Enjoy, where we're looking at the book of Philippians. It's this letter that we find in the New Testament, a relatively short letter written by a guy named Paul, one of the early church leaders. And we're taking a particular angle at this book because in this book, again and again and again, Paul talks about joy. But he does it as he's writing from a prison cell. And so we're asking the question, how does this guy who's going through such what apparently would be a very unjoyful experience, how is joy such a preoccupation for him? What can we learn about joy as we look at this letter together? And so we're going to look today, we're getting kind of towards the end. There's, there's four chapters in the letter. We're starting chapter four today. We're going to kind of finish up this week and next week, wrap this uh, series up. Uh, so this week we're going to look at Philippians chapter four, verses one through seven. And if you, if you have a Bible, you can read along. If you don't, the scriptures will be up here on the screen. You can just follow along up there as well. And as always, if you don't own a Bible but would like one, we'd like to invite you to grab one. We have them on the countertop in the back in the foyer. That would be our gift to you. We'd love for you to have one. But Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stay true to the Lord. I love you and long to see you, dear friends, for you are my joy and the crown I receive for my work. Now I appeal to Rhodia and Syntyche, please, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. And I ask you, my true partner, to help these two women, for they worked hard with me in telling others the good news. They worked along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, who, whose names are written in the book of life. Always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. Let everyone see that you are considerate in all that you do. 
Remember the Lord is coming soon. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. Now, when I kind of began thinking about this talk for, for this week, I was actually going in a pretty different direction. Um, I was going to uh, talk some about um, Paul's invitation for us to choose what we'll focus on and uh, neuroplasticity and how our thoughts determine, yeah, all that kind of stuff. And we might talk about that next week. But as I was kind of looking at this as it got towards the end of the week, I couldn't get past one line. It just kind of stuck with me. And it's kind of an odd line. Um, Paul says, remember, the Lord is coming soon. And if you're familiar with the New Testament at all, we we have kind of the, the biographies of Jesus, and then we have all of these letters that are written by people who are who are trying to kind of tell people about Jesus, his, his message, his death, his resurrection. And there's a theme throughout all of that. Jesus himself and then those who are telling others about him are regularly kind of referencing this idea that Christ will in fact return. That that is coming soon. That he'll return and he will make the world the way it ought to be. This is a kind of a central tenet to the Christian faith. Not that something once happened a long time ago that we just keep referencing, that's part of it. But that what happened long ago will be kind of fully realized someday. That it's not just that Jesus died and rose again and taught us some things, but that his death and resurrection was kind of a foretaste, uh, just the beginning of what God was doing for everyone, everywhere, for all time. And that ultimately, Jesus would return and make the world the way it ought to be. There's this word shalom that's used a lot in the Old Testament, and it, that concept is used a lot in the New Testament. And, and it's often translated peace, but it's more than peace. It's this idea of wholeness of everything that's broken and wrong being made right, of all the things that we look at and we find ourselves yearning, this is not the way things ought to be. That it's true, that's not the way things ought to be, and that God is, in fact, going to make it right in the end. This was anticipated by all of the early church leaders. It was a key part of how they saw the world how they envision the future. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says it this way. He says, There will come a time, which might indeed come at any time, when in the great renewal of the world that Easter itself foreshadowed, Jesus himself will be personally present and will be the agent and model of the transformation that will happen, both to the whole world and also to believers. As with the ascension, which is uh, Jesus kind of returning to be with the Father, with God, so with Jesus' appearing, it was seen as a vital part of a full presentation of the Jesus who was and is and is to come. Without it, the church's proclamation makes no sense. 
the right is claiming that it's, it's not just kind of this side thing, this, this thing that we, oh yeah, by the way, um, we, we kind of believe this. But that it doesn't, really, it doesn't really make any sense. The story of Jesus doesn't make sense if we don't have this hope that in the end, Jesus will return and will make everything as it should be. Everything as it was intended to be from the beginning. It's this idea that, that we're part of this kind of longer narrative that had a distinct beginning and will have an end. But not an end where like you close the book and the lights go out and it's over. But, but a consummation, a, a finale where everything is as it should be. That is, that's the hope. That the church, the, the people who have followed in the way of Jesus throughout the, the ages, that the church has been rooted in. It's critical as we look to what it means to follow Jesus together, and particularly to what it means to have hope. Now, I think this is important because I think Paul's sense of joy is, is grounded in this hope. His joy isn't possible if he doesn't have this hope for the future. And I think we kind of get this on a practical level, like in everyday life. So, for example, um, this weekend, I don't know about you, if if you have kids um, or if you are in kind of like anywhere from, well, Arcata, Sixers are out of here, so teenagers, you may have experienced this. In my household, there was a bit of a a cloud that settled in this weekend. You could feel it. It was was kind of tangible. Um, You knew something was amiss. Um, And... Eventually, you realize, like, oh, I got it, I got it. School's starting Monday morning. Yeah, yeah. And, and you just, you kind of realize, you know, the, the, shoulders, the shoulders slump. And you, you talk about, you know, it, it used to be just, just a, a mere couple of weeks ago when you talked about the future, there was a, a sense of excitement, a, a sense of expectation about all that would unfold. And now, whenever you talk about beyond, I don't know, 8.30 this evening, there's just this ominous sense of woe, right? Like, ah, school starts tomorrow, right? Now, that's the kids. Now, then there are our parents. Um, and there's a different kind of... So, so, um, so for the kids, you see how, how this, th- their vision of the future has kind of withered their hope, right? There's very little joy in the lives of my children this weekend. However, you can see a different expression on the faces of many parents. It's paradoxical. Um, we were actually at a get-together last night with a lot, of, uh, a lot of friends from the neighborhood. It was one of those, like, hey, end of the year kind of picnic thing. And so we're, like, hanging out. And it was fascinating, parent after parent. Now, these are people who really love their children, right? Like, they, they, they love their children. They care deeply about them. They want them in their lives. But they're looking at, at Monday as, as, like, this, uh, in the sense, almost a liberation, right? Like, they're like, wow, suddenly some order comes to the chaos, Right, that like summer was just kind of like no holds barred. You just never know what's going to happen anytime. There, there's no structure or, or pattern to anything. And now suddenly, miraculously, this thing happens called school. And, and, and then there's a schedule. And we have to follow it because otherwise we'll get arrested. But that's okay <laughs> because we can deal with that. Right? And, and so their, their expectation, their vision of the future inspires hope, right? That, that there's going to be space to breathe. 
or think, again, uh, think about like, y- your work week. Um, what is, uh, what's Wednesday commonly known as? It's, it's hump day, right? Why is it hump day? Well, because it's the middle of the week. And, and once you start on, on Monday, the weekend is just so far away. And so it, it's so discouraging. And your attitude, I mean, there's a reason why they call it a case of the Mondays, right? Like your attitude is that of someone who is just, I mean, even though you just had the weekend, I mean, you're thirsty, right? Like to, and you see it, it, and it's far away, and you're just slogging your way through until you can get to that fountain again, to the weekend, right? And so, so the, the attitude is relatively hopeless on Monday morning. Now, maybe you love your job, and this is absolutely not you, but for many people, there's a reason why that's true. But then once you get over the hump, you're kind of past lunch on Wednesday, maybe Thursday morning, and you're like, ah, the weekend's closer than it was before. There's a bit of a spring in my step. I'm not so grouchy. I'm, I'm a little bit more engaged. Okay, we can make this. We, we, we can do this, right? So, I mean, I know, they're very, they're very small uh, examples, but you see how our vision for the future affects our hope in the present, right? It, it affects how we experience the present right now. But it's not just how we feel. It also affects what we do. Again, practically, you, you see this all the time in, in terms of how people think about their money. Many of you probably are doing some kind of savings towards retirement, um, whether you're like almost there or maybe you're like in your early 20s and you've, you've got a job and you're starting to tuck money away. Good for you, by the way, if you are. Um, but why are you doing that? Well, because you're looking at the, uh, you know, the average kind of life expectancy in the U.S., and you're going, okay, 79. And most of us know people who are north of 79, so we're anticipating that we're going to do better than average, right? And so we're like, okay, I'm probably going to make it at least into my 80s, if not my 90s, and maybe I'm just going to be like 100 because I'm that guy. And so I need to plan because I don't want to work past, you know, 65 or whatever the new, I know that's not the actual number now, but let's just play with that one. Um, And so I'm thinking about what life will be like in the future. I anticipate being alive and vibrant and wanting to do things that might not be my job. And so I'm going to start tucking money away so that hopefully at that time I'll be able to do that. Now, that makes absolutely no sense if you do not plan on retiring. Like If if you're going to live to like 42... Saving that money now makes no sense. I mean, go buy a television. Go get a nicer car. Eat out more. I mean, whatever. It's, it's your vision of the future that affects your actions today. It, it changes the way you choose to live now, how you imagine the future unfolding. Final analogy. Um, we, we do this all the time with sports. So there is a... Uh, famous Czechoslovakian runner, whose name I will probably mispronounce, Emil Zatopek. He was born in 1922, and at the age of 16, uh, Emil was kind of, he was working in a, in a shoe factory. And apparently in Czechoslovakia in the 1930s, they had coaches at these shoe factories. I don't quite know the history there, though I'm going to look that up because I think that's interesting. But the, the coach uh, came to him at 16 and said, hey, I want you and these three other guys to enter a race. And Emil was like, ah, I'm kind of scrawny. I've never run before. I don't think I can do this. But he kind of forced them to. So he entered the race, and he came in second. And he was like, I can do this. 
And so he immediately started training. And he's notorious for his ruthless regime. He, he, just, he, he had these practices where he almost kind of tortured himself to squeeze the most out of him. For, after four years of training, self-taught training, he began setting records for Czechoslovakia. He, he made records in the 2,000, the 3,000, the 5,000-meter runs, eventually made it to the Olympics in 1952, and uh, got the gold medal in the 5,000 and the 10,000. He'd never done a marathon before, but for some reason, kind of had the itch. And so while he was at the Olympic Games, decided, not having planned beforehand, but decided, like, you know what, I think I'll run the marathon. Um, and, but his strategy for doing this is because, I mean, if, if you're a runner or if you know runners, you know you can't, it, just because you're good at the 2,000 meters doesn't mean suddenly you can run a marathon. It's a different kind of running. Um, but his strategy for this was he identified the best marathon runner in the world, Jim Peters from Great Britain, and he decided to pace him, to just run with him. And after about 15 grueling kilometers, the story goes that he looks at Jim and he says, so how do you feel about the race? And Jim's trying to psych him out, right? So he says, well, I think the pace is a little slow. So Emil simply accelerated. Peters didn't finish. Emil set a record. In 2013, Runner's World magazine listed him as the greatest runner ever. It's pretty impressive if you look at their list. But when asked about his motivation, I want you to hear what he said. He said this. He said, an athlete cannot run with money in his pockets. He must run with hope in his heart and dreams in his head. An athlete cannot run with money in his pockets. He must run with hope in his heart and dreams in his head. Fascinating quote. That, that what motivated him to run was this vision of what was in front of him. Not necessarily financial reward, though I assume that was, didn't hurt. But it was this, this picture of what would be at the end. Uh, and I don't know exactly what that was, whether it was winning, whether it was just the thrill of having accomplished it, but there was something about seeing the end that enabled him to do these grueling things again and again. They weren't fun. Nobody enjoys the training. But he was willing to do it for the sake of what he saw ahead. And I think this is a pretty apt parallel to what we see Paul doing here and calling us to remember that the Lord is coming soon. That this is not, like, these things you're experiencing now, that the stuff that you're going through, it's not less real, but our hope isn't in this right now. Our hope is in someday God is going to make all of this new. He began it with the death and resurrection of Christ. He's started it. I, I shouldn't say he's going to someday. He's, he's begun it already in us and through us in the world. And he'll bring it to completion someday. That our hope lies in that reality, in being a part of that story. And so because of that, we're not simply motivated to just do what is good for now. We live for something bigger something more meaningful, 
than just what works in the present. Paul kind of elaborates on this in one of his other letters. His letter, uh, it's, it's, we call it First Thessalonians. In First Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning of verse 14, he says this, Brothers and sisters, we urge you to warn those who are lazy. Encourage those who are timid. Take tender care of those who are weak. Be patient with everyone. See that no one pays back evil for evil, but always try to do good to each other and to all people. Always be joyful. Never stop praying. Be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. Now may the God of peace make you holy in every way, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ comes again. I don't know if you notice what Paul does there, but his hope in Christ's return is not about, okay, so let's just kind of hold on now and wait till it happens, right? Because that's, that's kind of the vision. When we start talking about stuff like this, I know it can get kind of weird because there have been groups in the past who, when they talk about, like, the end, what, is, what does that mean? Well, like, we hold up in a bunker, we, we become very kind of self-focused and isolated, separate ourselves from others, drink weird drinks. It's just not a good scene. And so whenever you talk about this, it can be a little like, woo, really? But the opposite is true for Paul. This hope that someday Christ will return and make everything as it should be doesn't isolate him, doesn't call him, cause him to withdraw and say, only people who agree with me and think like me, let's all go and wait in this bunker until that happens. It's the opposite. It empowers him to actually be more loving and kind and others-focused. It moves him out toward others. It doesn't pull him away. It's this vision, this hope for the future that causes Paul to not have to worry about himself, to trust that all will be well, and so I can give myself away in love because I trust that God is working all of this out. And someday this will all be made new. And there's a mystery to it. But there's a hope that's generated that draws us towards others, not away. I think this is absolutely why we see figures like Martin Luther King Jr. who are able to in ways that just don't make sense to us. That's why we kind of, you know, we kind of make them into these inhuman characters, right, who, who don't actually have mess and brokenness because we can't imagine. You know, he was 39 years old when he was assassinated. Probably three young kids, maybe four, three or four. Um, and yet, his house is firebombed. He receives threat upon threat upon threat. Any normal person would have gone, you know what, I'm into this, I think this is important, but I need to take a step back. This is getting a little intense. But it was his vision of the future, his hope that someday Christ was going to make all of this new that drove him, even in the midst of opposition, to push forward. That's why the night before he was assassinated, he could say these words. He said, like anybody, I would like to have a long life. Longevity has its place. 
But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. And I'm so happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. It was not Dr. King's vision of the present that inspired him to ultimately lay down his life. It was his vision of the future. It was how convinced he was that in the end, as hard as this was all going to be, and he, he, he didn't make any bones about the fact that this was going to be difficult, that it was worth it. Because in the end, he was, he was on the side that was winning. The side of, of love and justice and mercy that God was actually going to bring all of this to completion. And he was a part of that in some very small way. And so it empowered him to move forward, even to the extent that he laid his life down. But he wasn't afraid. He was able to live with hope, even though there was a lot to be worried about. And I think this is where we swing back to the idea of worry. If you remember in the, the passage, Paul starts out by saying, don't worry. And I think this is where those are connected. Because hope and worry can't coexist. Right? So the degree to which you have hope is the degree to which you're free from worry. Now, it's, it's not a you know, yes or no kind of thing. I think it's a continuum. So you can, have, you can kind of be hopeful, but also struggle with worry. So it's not like you have to have only one or the other. But the more hope grows, the more it pushes out worry. And the more we sense worry, the more we recognize we're losing hope. So Paul's call to hope was necessary. Like the vision of the future is what drove out worry. Not simply a determination to say, I'm going to stop doing that. It was a refocusing, a change of, of vision. If you've been around for a couple of weeks, you've probably heard about the Hefts. We have talked um, a number of times about a, a newer family in our community, Jason and Lisa Heft, and how uh, Lisa recently was diagnosed with cancer that the doctor said were incurable. And so she entered into this period of really intense chemo and radiation. And I've been able to, to be with them a couple of times. Uh, once they invited a few of us to come over and pray with them. Um, tonight, there's actually this, this prayer vigil being organized by mem members of their community. Um, the expectation is that it's going to be so large that the police are kind of giving directions to where they need to park people because they just expect the community response to be so big. And in this conversation, you can imagine, I mean, Lisa has three young daughters, 15, 13, 11. And so you can imagine what kind of conversations they're having, right? Your 40-year-old mom has cancer that's incurable. H how do you begin to broach those kind of conversations? Um, but one of the things that Lisa has mentioned numerous times, well, she mentioned them a couple of times to me, and now she currently can't, can't speak very well, and so her, her husband has brought it up was this conversation she had with one of her daughters where they were kind of talking about 
the future and Lisa's anxiety about what could be. And her daughter responded, I know, Mom, but life is so short and heaven is so long. It's going to be okay. Now, every time I think of that, I'm like, whoa. Like, first of all, that, you know, a, a 13 or 15-year-old is processing things like that. Um, but, but that amount of, of hope. Now, she's not immune to the anxiety of what life would look like without my mom. She's human. But you can see there this, this spark of hope, right? That this isn't the way life ought to be, and this isn't going to have the final word, even if the worst happens. This is not the final word. That is the hope that Paul's talking about. And that is the hope that has driven them again and again to invite people to pray, to gather around to pray for them, yes, for healing, but also for a renewed sense of hope. That the future, the future will be full of God's goodness and love and mercy. That he will make the world the way it ought to be. Christ will return. We can live with hope, even in the midst of intense difficulty. This is where Paul's hope is rooted. We can't get around it. If we're going to talk about where Paul's hope comes from, we have to talk about his vision of the future. And for those of us who are looking to follow in the way of Jesus, this is where we are invited to find our hope as well. Not in a way that makes us kind of weird and isolated, putting on the foil hat, keeping the rest of the world at arm's length, but actually in a way that moves us out to begin to care about the things that God's, God cares about, to begin to grow a vision for God's good future and to join him in making it here and now. That is what hope does in us. That is why Paul calls us to hope. So two quick takeaways for that, I think, that, that Paul moves us towards. He calls, he calls the Philippians to pray, right? Don't, don't worry, but pray. Well, why prayer? Well, I, I thought of this when I, I was thinking about my son's room. So my son's a runner. He's one of those crazy people. Um, and he has, I asked him if I could show a picture of his room. So this is one of the walls in his room. And, and there's a number of, I don't know what you call those. What do you, just, your, they're your number in the race. I guess there's not a name for them. If you know one, you could tell me later. But, you know, it indicates your number in the race. And, uh, and you see some of his medals that he's won and, and ribbons. And so these are things that are kind of hanging there. And as I was thinking about why those exist, like why Josh has those there, it's interesting because they, they serve as kind of a, a reminder to him. I mean, sure, it's cool to look at that and be like, oh, I did that. But it's also a reminder of why he runs. It reminds him that this, this matters, that there's something worth running for. There's something worth putting myself through all of this stuff for. This experience of, of being a part of these events, of, of winning these medals, of you know, kind of competing, 
this is all really worth it. And so it motivates him to sign up for the next race and the next race and to train harder. And it struck me that that's, that's really what Paul is calling us to in prayer. Right now, there's a lot of different ways you can pray. Just like, you know, there's a lot of different ways I can have conversations with my wife. Right? Some of those conversations are conversations that are kind of very, very intimate, very kind of sharing, emotional. Some of them are very like, okay, what's the calendar like this week? What do we have to do? Um, you know, sometimes we have conflict. And we're, so there's lots of different kinds of conversations. And I think the kind of prayer that, that Paul's inviting us towards is this kind that reminds us, that grounds us in this larger story. It's, it's prayer that keeps drawing us back in when we're tempted to worry, to remind us that we're part of this bigger thing that God is doing in the world. That we are in a story where at the end, Christ comes and he restores all things, and we get to be a part of that work here and now. And so prayer is a reminder, as a call toward hope, to fill our lives with hope so that worry is pushed out, so that there's no space for it. The invitation is for us to pray, that prayer roots us in hope. So I would invite you as kind of a takeaway to think through, how is your prayer rooting you in hope? Are you, are you taking time to reflect on the, part, on the fact that you are part of this bigger story? Because sometimes, you know, and, and again, I think, there, again, there are different ways to pray, and there's times when kind of praying about simply the things that we're anxious about, that we're worried about, are really helpful and good, as long as we do that in a way that kind of lets them go and doesn't just circle on them, right? Because there's, there's prayers, there's ways we can pray that actually is just kind of a way of processing our angst. And, and that doesn't breed hope. I think the, the prayer that Paul's inviting us to is one that's rooted in hope, that's replacing our anxiety about the present with our hopes for the future, that draws us to kind of keep moving forward. So that's one, prayer as a, a way to root in hope. And second, for us to see worry as a hope, as kind of a gauge uh, of our hope. Right? So, so the more that we experience worry and anxiety, the more that should be a signal to us that what we're lacking is hope. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't actual things to worry about or to be anxious about. There are. There are real things that exist that are difficult, and we need to deal with them. Um, but it's interesting. I was having a conversation, and I can't even remember who it was, so if it's one of you, I, I apologize for not giving you credit. But I was having a conversation with someone this past week, and they said to me, they're like, yeah, the funny thing about worrying about the worst-case scenario is even if it happens, you've experienced it twice. I was like, yeah, that's actually really true. And, and that doesn't mean you don't ever think and plan and, and process that stuff. But there's a difference between making good decisions and processing difficult things and sitting there and just brooding on all the worst case scenarios and all the possibilities of what could go wrong. Right? There's a difference. I think sometimes that can serve as a gauge to say, like, we're getting, we're getting kind of bogged down here in this place that's really destructive and unhelpful. And prayer is a tool, it's an opportunity to kind of reframe our vision of the future, to remind ourselves 
that there is a God who is at work, who is bringing about goodness and love and justice in the world. So we can move forward in hope. And that even if the worst happens, we can trust that one. We can trust that God. Sometimes we need a lot of help in this. Sometimes it's really difficult to get ourselves out of those ruts. And so we need people who can come around us and call us to hope. That's part of why we do community groups. So, um, you know, as we start those up this tonight, uh, if you're not a part of a community group, even if this is your first time here, but you're kind of thinking about getting connected, I encourage you to check one out tonight. If you have questions about that, talk to me. I'd love to help you figure out which one. But sometimes we just need friends who can come around us and help us when we get kind of bogged down in, in our worry. Because it's difficult to pull ourselves out of those ditches, right? Sometimes we need people to come alongside of us and help us out. So this is a great opportunity for you. So if you aren't a part of a community group, I um, really encourage you to get connected tonight. That's a, it's a great place to start. Um, let, me, um, let me take a minute and just pray for us, and then we're going to actually move on to something else here. Father, it's really, God, it's really easy for me to um, not not live in hope, to not think about the, this, this hope that you are bringing life and beauty and justice into the world, that you, you will one day make all things new. It's easy for me to lose sight of that and to get, just kind of get bogged down in the anxiety of the present and, and whatever I'm facing in the moment. Would you help me? Would you help us together individually and collectively to be rooted in hope to have our prayers root us in hope, root us in your story, and propel us into the world to be people who are living out your love and justice and beauty in the world. We ask this in Jesus' name.